Hey, this is Basil Jackson of the Calgary Stampeders, and you're listening to MTMV Sports. Keep it locked. When you're sick, every minute counts. So don't go anywhere. Go to DispatchHealth.com where high-quality medical care comes directly to you. No getting out of a sick bed. No crazy driving to an emergency room. No endless paperwork. No hospital waiting rooms. Visit DispatchHealth.com to learn about our medical professionals, then make house calls. Dispatch Health is covered by Medicare and most major insurance. Go to DispatchHealth.com. The Home Depot's number one in outdoor power. But when it comes to cordless power, we also pack quite a punch. With the latest mowers, blowers, trimmers, and more. From exclusive brands like Ryobi, DeWalt, Ego, Milwaukee, and Makita. Unleashing the power of gas with all the convenience of cordless. The best names in cordless power. Order online for easy pickup or delivery. Only from The Home Depot. How doers get more done. U.S. only. Hello, everybody. I'm Ed Robinson, and welcome to another exciting edition of The Robinson Show. On the program, we have multifaceted entertainer Jason Weaver. Nice, nice is okay. (laughs) I know, I know. I can't help it. She makes me nervous and my mind goes blank. Come on, man, I need your help. He discusses his upbringing, storied career, and things he has coming up in the future. That's all coming up after the break. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Robinson Show. When you're sick, every minute counts. So don't go anywhere. Go to DispatchHealth.com where high-quality medical care comes directly to you. No getting out of a sick bed. No crazy driving to an emergency room. No endless paperwork. No hospital waiting rooms. Visit DispatchHealth.com to learn about our medical professionals, then make house calls. Dispatch Health is covered by Medicare and most major insurance. Go to DispatchHealth.com. When you're sick, every minute counts. So don't go anywhere. Go to DispatchHealth.com where high-quality medical care comes directly to you. No getting out of a sick bed. No crazy driving to an emergency room. No endless paperwork. No hospital waiting rooms. Visit DispatchHealth.com to learn about our medical professionals, then make house calls. Dispatch Health is covered by Medicare and most major insurance. Go to DispatchHealth.com. I try to keep up with what these young people is is doing and knowing. I was at work, and I was I just got a text from a number that I didn't know. I sent him a text. He texts me back and say, who this? <laughs> and I just thought that was the funniest thing. The next few weeks, you just made fun of me, like would answer the door and say, who dis? Who dis? Drop off a warm meal and get more than you expect. Volunteer at americaletsdolunch.org. America, America, let's let's do do lunch. lunch. I'm going to Kansas City. Kansas City, here I come. Man, what I think, man, in the first place, you was already lame for buying a necklace. Believe it, brother, I'm the new young hope. Showtime's at 7.30. Everybody's going to be there. She makes me nervous and my mind goes blank. Come on, man, I need your help. I just laid my best line on her up there and I got no love. Welcome back to the program, everybody. I'm your host, Ed Robinson. On the program, we have a variety of people in the world of sports, but also from time to time, we like to grab people from other areas and facets of life, whether it be acting or whether it be people coming from the world of film, television, music, or education. You never know who we're going to have on. And I have a brother that's been doing his thing 
not just in the acting world, but also in doing his music thing as well. And he's a multifaceted, versatile entertainer. And we're going to have him just talk briefly about his career, his upbringing, also his hometown sports team. We want to welcome to the program actor, entertainer, Mr. Jason Weaver. Hey, Jason, welcome to the program. Hey, Ed, thank you so much for having me on. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show today, man. Thank you so much. Man, thanks once again for uh, being on, and thank you once again for taking time out of your busy schedule to do this. So let's jump right to it. Every story has a beginning, and your upbringing, you're uh, born and bred in Chicago, and Chicago's one of those special cities. Just kind of share briefly with our audience, just uh, what was it like growing up in the Windy City? Oh, man. Well, first and foremost, I, I, honest, I've, I've been honored uh, to, you know, to be born in the city. I was technically born in Harvey, Illinois, uh, at Ingalls Hospital, July 18th, 1979. But I was raised uh, partially on the south side uh, where, my, where my family lived for many years since the Great Migration, since my grandparents and my mother and my aunts and uncles had moved up from Atlanta, Georgia. And no, we've been in the, the Haywood family uh, has been a part of Chicago South Side and an African American neighborhood and community for years. My father was a, uh, or my grandfather, I should say, Jacob Haywood was a uh, pastor, a bishop uh, on the South Side and oversaw First Protestant Church, I believe, like right off of 71st Street. And no, pretty much my, my mother, uh, Marilyn Haywood, also affectionately known as Kitty Haywood, her and her sisters you know, grew up in the church singing, eventually transitioned into the professional realm where they became professional recording artists that worked with the likes of Curtis Mayfield, uh, Aretha Franklin, the Ohio Players, Tyrone Davis, a lot of like the Chicago legends, you know, that, that came out of the city during that time. They even had their own record out for, at a time called Kitty in the Haywoods that experienced, you know, some moderate uh, commercial uh, success. And then from there, after they retired professionally, you know, from the recording industry, they transitioned into doing jingles for different commercials and for different brands. And not a lot of people know this about the city of Chicago during the, what, late 70s, early 80s on to, I'd say the latter part of the 90s. Chicago was a major hub for advertisement firms and for jingle singers, producers, and musicians who would write and craft you know, some of the biggest jingles that, that have ever come out, whether it's for United Airlines, McDonald's, Crest Toothpaste, a lot of those major advertising and, and marketing campaigns in those days came out of the city from, of Chicago. And that's where I got my start, essentially, you know, growing up in the studio, watching my mother work professionally. I just caught the, the bug at a really young age. I'd probably say like four or five years old to where I expressed a genuine interest in wanting to get involved in the entertainment industry. And, you know, fortunately enough for me, my mother was in a position to where she had been working in the industry for an extended period of time, had a lot of really good, sound, you know, reputable, reputable relationships that she could kind of, you know, reach out to and help to open some doors for me, at least when it came to like auditioning and getting my feet wet and getting in front of the right people that kind of showcase my talent. So that said, a lot of my early work uh, that I started off getting uh, back home in Chicago was stuff for print ads, a lot of stuff directly tied or directly marketed towards the African-American community, whether it was for Coca-Cola, whether it was for Luster products. Like I did, I was on the cover of a, a Luster products box for the natural look hair care product that they had out back in the 80s. 
and, you know, I did a lot of, you know, just local stuff initially. And then I kind of segued and transitioned into commercials, national commercials. And then from there, I just naturally transitioned into auditioning for feature films, which eventually led to my first feature film role at uh, nine years old for a film called The Long Walk Home, which starred uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Sissy Spacek. And it was based around uh, two families, a white family and a black family, at the height of the Montgomery bus boycott and how it affected those two families and, you know, what they went through during that time. So it was, a, you know, it was a historical period piece that I was honored to be a part of in the work of Whoopi Goldberg and Sissy Spacek, two legends, you know, in, in our field. And, uh, and then from there, I was able to have the honor and the privilege of working alongside with Oprah Winfrey on a short-lived uh, series that she shot uh, right at Harpo Studios on the west side of Chicago uh, called Brewster Place. And this wasn't the, the mini-series Brewster Place that a lot of people are familiar with that starred Oprah and Jack A. Harris. This was an actual series uh, that was on ABC, you know, that, that came from that miniseries. But it was a short-lived, you know, kind of show uh, that was on. But yet and still, it gave me the opportunity to work at home, work with a lot of great local talent in the city of Chicago, as well as the, you know, phenomenal union crew people that worked there in the city. Uh, gave me a chance to work with Oprah Winfrey, who gave me a shot, gave me an opportunity to, you know, keep my face and my name out there. Um, and then from there, I think right after that was when I was given the opportunity to play Michael Jackson in the uh, in the Jackson's in American Dream. I was honored to be cast by Michael Jackson himself, uh, you know, a kid coming straight out of Chicago uh, to be given that opportunity. And also from, from Michael and his family. Uh, to be from Gary, Indiana, which everybody knows is, you know, our direct neighbors, you know, for, for it to kind of come full circle like that, where they would open up the doors, you know, to opportunity and success to a kid from Chicago, totally indebted to Michael Jackson and Jackson family to this day for that. And then uh, immediately after that, Sir Elton John recruited me to do The Lion King. I was this singing voice of young Simba um, in the original uh, Lion King, the feature, the animated feature film. So those songs, I Just Can't Wait to Be King, Hakuna Matata, I sang those, which was just a total, total blessing. From there, let's see, I did a sitcom on ABC called Thea, which starred Thea Vidal, also Brandy, before she became the um, musical icon that she is now. Uh, so I worked on that with them. Let's see, years later, got the opportunity to work on a show called Smart Guy uh, that a lot of people are familiar with, and it's just now um, kind of reemerging, if you will, due to uh, the launch of Disney+. Plus. Uh, you know, there's a generation that grew up with the show that was already familiar with it, but thankfully now there's a new generation that's being introduced to it via Disney+. Plus. So I had the honor and the blessing of working on that show. From there, I did, like, Drumline with Nick Cannon. I did ATL with T.I. I did Lottery Ticket. I've dabbled in music, like you said earlier, kind of going back a little bit in between the time that I was doing the Jacksons and American Dream and the Lion King project. I was given a record deal through Motown Records where I released a single through there, which is still to this day a city favorite, a hometown favorite, especially amongst the, the stepper set back home in Chicago. It was a song called Love Ambition. So I released a, uh, pardon me, I released a uh, full EP or full LP, I should say, with Motown back in 1994 that experience of moderate success you know I got a chance to to uh, 
you know, really go around the country, tour with that record, you know, give my fans another layer of, of, uh, of the talent that I've been blessed with. And, yeah, from there, and then just from music, whether it was that at Motown, whether it was The Lion King, I also had a hit record out with Chingy um, years ago called uh, One Call Away. That was like an R&B hit maybe about, damn, 20 years ago, maybe 19 or 18 years ago, which, you know, still rings bells to this day. A lot of people view it as like one of those classic hip-hop and R&B records that came out during that era of music. So, yeah, I've, I've, uh, no, I've been really, really blessed. And I think one of the, the, uh, the main things that I can honestly say, too, is that I've always had the city of Chicago behind me since, since day one, since I, I first came out and, and started really, you know, planting, uh, planting my flag in the soil and letting people know that I was there. I've always had the, the unwavering support of the city, and I continue to do it. And I'm, I'm very proud to represent uh, the great city of Chicago as one of the talents that have come from there. And, you know, I just pray and hope that I'll continue to be uh, given the opportunity to do that, to keep representing, you know. Wow, you've had a story career thus far, Jason, and uh, I want to get back to uh, someone that was a storied person in our community, someone that was a groundbreaker in the entertainment world and just in the humanitarian world in general, the the man that you mentioned earlier, Michael Jackson, and you played Michael Jackson in between the ages of 9 and 14 in the miniseries, The Jackson's an American Dream, and that miniseries is still played on many outlets uh, all over the world. What mm-hmm. was the preparation like preparing to play young Michael? Because I know you, you watched him for a long time. I know your mother had the pleasure mm-hmm. of having run-ins with him and stuff. But what was the preparation like in terms of as far as learning choreography and just his movements and things of that nature during that time period? And what was it like with the audition process and meeting Michael and the rest of the family? No, the, the, uh, the preparing for the actual auditioning process um, – it was hard work. You know, my, my mother worked with me tirelessly uh, to prepare me for the role of many afternoons and evenings spent, you know, right in the middle of our kitchen after I got through with my homework and us going through, you know, us going through the songs, the early Jackson 5 stuff, whether it was I Want You Back or ABC, I'll Be There, all that stuff, um, really studying uh, Michael's tone. Uh, the character in his voice, the inflection that, you know, he had in his voice and on some of the words and, uh, you know, that he would sing out and, and really mastering those subtle nuances that, uh, you know, that, that were a part of Michael that uh, not a lot of people would pay attention to like that, but definitely as it relates to the diehard Michael Jackson and Jackson 5 fans that they would pay attention to. And that was something that my mother understood early on and did her best to prepare me for it. So it was, you know, it was uh, a lot of evenings spent just studying videotape, studying the songs, doing like little makeshift choreography that my mother had put together uh, to kind of give casting and and the producers an idea uh, that I could actually, you know, execute and do this stuff. Because, mind you, this was before, you know, social media. uh, This was before the Internet, you know what I mean? So... There, were, there weren't a lot of uh, reference points or back reference stuff that you could, you know, kind of refer to, you know, to kind of watch and to study and, and gather intel. And, like, you know, my mother was the one that really, you know, did all of that and, and, and put all that together to allow me to, you know, be as, as prepared as I possibly could for the actual auditioning process. And then when the, when the actual audition rolled around uh, and I put myself on tape at my agent's office and, 
in downtown Chicago. Um, by the time I started auditioning, I felt very confident about my ability to, you know, portray this role. And, you know, I knew that it was a long shot in a sense because I knew that every kid in America and more or less around the world was itching for a chance, you know, to audition for this role. So I knew that the competition uh, was really fierce and really steep. And all I knew uh, was that no matter what, I should just put my best foot forward and be as prepared as I possibly could. And sure enough, uh, once that tape was sent out to Los Angeles to the head of casting uh, and to the director uh, and the producers, uh, they definitely took a liking to my tape, which, you know, prompted them to uh, fly me and my mother out to California to do another round of, uh, you know, serious auditions in, in front of everyone. And so, you know, we got to Los Angeles and, um, you know, they put us in a hotel and the whole nine. And, you know, I'm thinking at that time that I'm one of probably the, you know, at least top 10 finalists that, were being seriously considered to play the role, but surprisingly and unbeknownst to me, uh, prior to showing up, uh, they brought like the best hundred kids from around the world to Los Angeles to audition. So, you know, once I got there in, in that phase of the auditioning process, then I had to, you know, just kind of uh, work my way through uh, that long list of finalists who were auditioning specifically for that one role. So uh, eventually when my time came uh, to audition in front of uh, not only the director and the producers, but in front of the Jackson family, I was given, I remember when we showed up that, that day, uh, an assistant casting director, because it was, it was really hectic that day uh, for everybody. And there was an assistant casting director who really didn't know what all the kids were there for, what specific role that they were auditioning for. So she was kind of just handing out random sides to kids, period. You know, she had shot me the the Randy sides. And, of course, that, you know, I I recognize that that's not the role that I was flown all the way out here for. Uh, But I was still a little timid and uh, reluctant to, you know, kind of make her aware of it. But what ended up happening was there was a kid that came out of the auditioning room right before I went in. And I guess he had, like, you know, a pretty bad audition. And he was frustrated and he threw some sides in the garbage can next to me where I was sitting and preparing and going audition. And so I just happened to glance over into the garbage can and saw that they, they were the sides from Michael. And I was like, Oh man, let me grab these and refamiliarize myself then. Cause you know, I just felt at that particular time, it was like a now or never moment. Um, you know, if I was going to do this, uh, you know, now is the time to make the choice to step up to the plate and, and uh, claim my destiny, if you will. And so i Immediately took the sides out of the garbage can, began to refamiliarize myself with the material, and began to kind of mentally position myself in a way to, you know, go in and give the best portrayal of a young Michael Jackson that I possibly could. And so, you know, when I went into the room, I immediately noticed uh, Mrs. Jackson, Mr. Jackson, uh, Jermaine Jackson, his wife at the time, Margaret Maldonado, who coincidentally were also uh, executive producers on the uh, show. And, um, you know, I just performed my heart out and, uh, I was reassured that I had done a good job and I did a good job, uh, when Mrs. Jackson, as I was exiting out of the room, uh, to be escorted back into the holding area, she just gave me a, a little wink and a nod of, of approval, uh, to let me know at least that, uh, the performance that I put forth was impressive. And, uh, so from there, uh, being completely honest with you, I was content with that. As long as they knew that, 
you know, I was a kid with, with a real talent, um, you know, as far as I was concerned from that point on, uh, it didn't matter what happened from there because I recognized that, you know, somebody great or this great family that I've looked up to uh, had taken the time to recognize uh, my talent. So I was somewhat content with that. And um, they immediately after that, they put us on a red eye back to Chicago. Uh, we landed at O'Hare. I think it like, what? 5.30 the next morning, uh, I uh, I actually had to, it was funny because I flew back on a red eye that night so I could make a, um, I was in a marching band at my school at McKinley Junior High, and we had a regional competition, I think, out in like Schaumburg or something like that. So uh, I immediately left O'Hare uh, after getting off the flight and uh, went and did the band competition. Uh, we came in second that day, and then after that, uh, I waited, like, I think anywhere from three to four months uh, to hear whether I actually got the part or not, because the final approval uh, to portray Michael Jackson had to come from Michael himself. Uh, but at that time, Michael was preparing to go on tour for the Dangerous album, so mostly his focus was on that. Uh, it really wasn't on, you know, the miniseries and you know, and trying to get back to them as soon as possible. He was trying to, you know, prepare himself for, you know, for his own tour and for his own show. But eventually he got a chance to take a look at the uh, last three finalists who were chosen to uh, to play him or to portray him. And out of those three finalists, he chose me. And, yeah, from there it was it was on and cracking. It was, it was full steam ahead after that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right about that. It definitely was a full steam ahead and cracking. And, uh I want us to stay with the Jacksons and American Dream. Uh, one more question I want to ask you pertaining to that. You worked with sure. some uh, talented heavy hitters in the acting world, you know, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, who we know from the television show Welcome Back, Carter, and, of course, he mm-hmm. was in Cooley High and a, a ton of other television shows and movies, and, of course, the great Angela Bassett, who is a, you know, who is, who is a, a great thespian in her own right. Just kind of tell, them, mm-hmm. tell our audience what was your experiences like, not only working with Lawrence and Angela, but also with Holly Robinson Pete because she played Diana Ross in the miniseries. Oh yeah, I mean working with all of them, including Terrence Howard. Terrence Howard also. That's right, because he played Jackie, uh, correct? He played Jackie, yeah. So you know, I got a chance to work with him at a very young age. I think this is like right when he started, because I think prior to that he was like a theater actor, from what I vaguely remember. Like, he had, like, a pretty extensive background in theater or something like that. and But this was kind of like his, um, like, one of his first big roles as well. And, uh, man, I learned a lot, you know, from all of those guys. Uh, I think, you know, for, for Lawrence Hilton Jacobs and for, uh, for Angela Bassett and for Holly Robinson Pete, their thing, the, the, the insight and the knowledge that they shared with me was just constantly reminded me to have fun because they recognize and they realize that there is a lot of pressure, you know, on all of us, but in particular, there's a lot of pressure on, on the kids, you know, who had to portray these, you know, iconic figures in uh, pop music and, you know, and, and, and the Jacksons, uh, the Jackson family fans and Michael Jackson's fans are really dedicated <laughs> and very loyal and to some degree fanatical. And so, um, you know, they, the adults there uh, knew that 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 was kind of like uh, a weight that was hanging over our heads. And so I think the main thing that, from what I vaguely remember, what they always tried to do 
was just remind us of what we were there for to do in the first place. First of all, it's to have fun. Second of all, it was to the best of our ability, bring honor to this legendary family uh, who had opened so many doors, um, not only for entertainers in general, but especially for black entertainers. And so we all knew that we were there to pay homage uh, to that family and to uh, represent uh, on their behalf the, the best way that we could. And so, no, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of professional insight, if you will, uh, that they cared to share with us. They encouraged us as, you know, young black children that they saw being given this extraordinary opportunity. And they just took the time to remind us every day of how truly blessed we were to be there you know, to work hard and to have fun and to be nice to people, you know what I'm saying, and, and just enjoy being in the moment. And those were some of the best pieces of advice uh, that I've ever got in my career, um, you know, was, was from Lawrence and, and from Angela and from Holly Robinson. And, you know, although Terrence, he was um, still a young man at that All right, buddy, I got to go now, but I'll put on your favorite show. See you tonight. Welcome back to Cooking with Chef Antonio. Gee, well, I would like to know how this risotto will turn out, but I'll probably just go to sleep in your bed and sniff your sheets and then figure out what that squirrel is planning. Squirrels. Your dog doesn't care if the TV is on? With energy-saving tips and programs from Georgia Power, you can save money and make your home more efficient. Learn more at georgiapower.com slash efficiency. You've been camping in your backyard, cycling in your living room, You've been enjoying rain showers in your bathroom, campfires on your TV screen. You've been counting stars and birds from your window and holding family cookouts in the kitchen. Now, get ready to go. Go on a real vacation. Take the wheel at your nearest RV dealer or at GoRV.com. Tom as well, uh, him just having some of the uh, the experience that he had as being like, you know, a stage actor and all of that, he was able to share some things with me on a professional level um, to help me uh, enhance my performance as Michael Jackson. So, no, it was uh, all around. Uh, it was just a, an amazing and rewarding experience. And those things that I learned and took with me then, uh, I still carry with me to this day. Absolutely. Awesome to hear. And then once you've, had your uh, your time on being on that miniseries. You transitioned, stayed on the uh, the television side on the ABC show called Thea, where you played Jerome. And uh, it was an interesting character because, as you mentioned earlier, this was Brandy before she really blew up, before Moesha and the mega, uh, st- mega stardom that she had. Just kind of briefly tell our audience a little about what was your experience like being on the show Thea? Oh, it was great. I mean, my you know, my experience, of working on the show was, was awesome. Um, you know, just, just being completely transparent, uh, you know, and this is, this is nothing new to people. Uh, but there was, you know, a little bit of, uh, uh, drama between, you know, uh, Thea and, and Brandy, um, during that time, uh, you know, where, you know, Brandy went through a lot. Um, they, that's water under the bridge now. They, they've, uh, They've resolved that with one another, but there were, you know, a couple little dramatic incidents that took place on set between her and Thea. But um, overall, you know, my uh, uh, personal experience uh, of working on that show was great. I wish we could have, you know, stuck around for another season. 
because uh, it was a really good show. You know, we had all the ingredients to be one of those series that, you know, could have went on for maybe like six or seven seasons, but it just wasn't in the cards. You know, just a lot of things behind the scenes that I won't, you know, get into that just, you know, that just didn't, uh, just didn't allow it to uh, continue to, to carry on. But I'm I'm thankful for the opportunity that I had to work with Thea Vidal. You know, she was, she was extremely nice to me and my mother and, I uh, appreciate her for that. It was great to work alongside with Brandy uh, and to see her before she, um, you know, made her ascension into R&B and pop megastardom. And also, you know, to work with the rest of the cast on there. I worked with a lot of a lot of great people um, that, uh, you know, that I learned a lot from during that time. So, no, nah, Thea, Thea was a great, great experience. I, th- that's one of those shows that I wish – Man, we we would have just been given more time with that show because I I honestly believe that it could have been one of those like you know that stuck around for for years, but you know just wasn't in the cards. Well, you definitely um, rebounded back on television again, Jason, because several years later, a show that was one of my favorites and still a lot of favorites in the hearts of many people is a Smart Guy, where you were alongside with Taj Maori and Essence Atkins mm-hmm. and Omar Gooding, and it was a show that ran. Yeah. For, uh, for several seasons, and again, you mentioned Smart Guy earlier because of the new uh, subscription service with Disney Plus, and of course, they ran on the yes. original WB. So, tell our audience just about uh, what Smart Guy and just what that experience was like. Man, Smart Guy was awesome. One of the more rewarding experiences that I've had in my career, you know, whether it, it was the actual reaction that we got from our viewing audience or it was just working with the people that I had the honor and privilege of working with every day. You know, working with Taj was awesome. He was a great kid. He's still a great guy. Working with Essence, of course. Working with John Marshall Jones. Of course, my brother Omar Gooding. Getting to work with Disney again and getting a chance to work on the Disney lot. And just, you know, just to be able to have fun and to do great material, you know, be able to tell a great story about a single black father, you know, raising his children, hardworking black man, you know, to, to, to be one of those actors during that time that was fortunate enough to be on a show that represented that was just an honor, man. And, you know, behind the scenes in front of the camera, I mean, everything that you saw, if it looked like we were having fun on that show is because we all genuinely were and we all got along great. We still do. Those are people that I still talk to to this day. All of them hold a very, very special place in my heart. And, no, nah, working on Smart Guy was, man, it was awesome. And I'm so happy that, you know, Disney Plus uh, decided to include that on their platform, you know, to kind of uh, build a reconnection between us as the people that were in Smart Guy, you know, with those those fans of ours who, who watched the show for years. And now, you know, those people that grew up with us watching that show, you know, now have families of their own, kids of their own, you know, that they're introducing to the show and the, and the kids of, of this new generation are loving it. So, nah, man, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm very blessed to have been a part of, uh, of that show and to have that experience. Let's stay with Smart Guy for a moment, Jason. Full House had a reboot. Will we see Smart Guy have a possible reboot? You know what? I don't know. I mean, that, that's a good question. You know, it, it, ultimately, that, that's going to be up to Disney. I'm sure well, I know it'll also be up to the availability, you know, of the other actors. You know, I know Essence is working on a show on OWN right now. Um, I know Taj is doing some things. You know, Omar is doing some things. We're all doing things. We're all working on different projects and stuff like that right now. But I'm pretty sure 
that if Disney reached out and expressed an interest and wanted to reboot it, I think all of us would jump at the chance to, to do it because we all genuinely enjoy working with each other. And we all genuinely love one another, you know what I'm saying, as people, as human beings. So, I, you know, it wouldn't be like pulling teeth from a giraffe, if you will, if, uh, if the studio called and said that they wanted to, you know, make something happen. I'm pretty sure in everybody's own way, uh, especially contractually, if it's allowed for them to do it, they'll make themselves available. All right. Well, now let's uh, transition. Let's go back to the, the film world. And you mentioned about Elton John, and let's talk about The Lion King. You were mm-hmm. the singing voice of young Simba, and you really resonated not just with children during that time period, but also with people from all from all over. Because the, the songs that you sang with uh, the songs that you sang in the movie were uh, "I Just Can't Wait to Be King" and "Hakuna Matata," and certainly that mm-hmm. I mean that that movie is still selling. I mean, it's people are still yeah. enjoying The Lion King. Just tell our audience yeah. a little bit about that experience, and also with the process of uh, uh, meeting uh, Elton John. Oh, man. Uh, Now, the experience of working with Lion King was, man, it was unreal. You know, I look back now in retrospect and, you know, during that time and just being completely honest with you, when I was recruited for it, while I was singing the songs, the whole nine, I had no idea how successful it was going to be. I knew that Disney had an extremely successful track record when it came down to their animated films because I was a big fan of their stuff, like the Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, you know, Little Mermaid. Like, I grew up watching that stuff, like, alongside with everyone else. But when The Lion King uh, came about, I figured it would kind of just fall in the line with the rest of those films. But surprisingly, it, it didn't. It, you know, it kind of surpassed even those classic films that, that had come out prior. And, I, you know, I thank God for that every day because it, it wasn't only just a rewarding experience personally, but it's always it's also been a very uh, rewarding experience monetarily and like financially from a residual standpoint. And, um, you know, having the opportunity to work with Elton John and with Tim Rice and with all of the crew and and the staff at Disney animation that gave me that opportunity. No, it's just something that I'm, I'm very, very, very proud of, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm totally indebted and so thankful and so grateful to Sir Elton John for, you know, even presenting such an amazing opportunity to me to a kid that had no idea what it was that he was presenting at that time. I just, I, I had no clue that it was going to be, it was going to turn out to be the iconic animated feature film that it's turned out to be. And I'm so proud to have my, my name and my legacy aligned and attached to that. And, you know, even with the, uh, with the, with the new one came out, you know, there were so many people from my generation and from that time when the original came out that, you know, it allowed me to reconnect with some of my fans as well and to make people aware of my involvement in it when I was when I was younger. So, no, Disney's always been an amazing and great company to work for and to work with. And, no, I, I, I can't say enough good things about my experience with The Lion King. Man, I want to you, – you touched briefly just about, you you know, you reaping the financial – you've reaped and you still are reaping the financial benefits – of the Lion King as far as residuals, because, you know, residuals go a long way, especially in, in your industry. I wanted to know, did mm-hmm. you have a say-so in terms of negotiating that deal, or did your mother have some input in that? No, I mean, my mother pretty much was the one who, you know, built the framework for any deals, you know, that were structured uh, on my behalf. Uh, but that said, my mother never made any decisions 
that I wasn't aware of. I was all, I was always counseled. I was always brought into the fold, and I was always made aware of the moves that were being made on my behalf because my mother recognized that at some point in time I was going to be the one overseeing my own business and my own career at some point. So at a very young age, my mother made sure that I understand that I understood uh, contractual agreements and obligations and what this meant and what this stipulation meant and you know what this term meant and what this like you know I was I was um, I was coached in that at a very early age because my mother recognized from her time in being in the business and seeing so many other um, black entertainers get taken advantage of just based on the fact that they didn't have any knowledge about the business prior to entering into these deals and these agreements, you know, she was held in on making sure that her son didn't fall victim to that same thing. So, you know, from the gate, when my mother began to recognize how this was going to pay off possibly in the long run, she positioned me, you know, contractually to be able to to reap the benefits, you know, long after the, the hype died down on it and, you know, 20 or 30-something-odd years have passed, and then you get, you know, a whole new uh, a whole new generation that, that got into it. And, you know, I give my mother all the credit because uh, if it wasn't for her negotiating the deals that she did and the way that she did on my behalf, I wouldn't be receiving the uh, the residual income that I get from those. So, you know, no, I, I, I always uh, credit my mother for that. But like I said, no decisions were made where I wasn't made aware but definitely, you know, as far as who spearheaded those deals and framed them properly and uh, delegated to, uh, you know, my attorneys and, and my managers and stuff, that was my mom, you know, running point on all that stuff. Awesome to hear. And speaking of uh, running on point, you continue to be on point in the film world, a movie that's synonymous with the HBCU culture and just marching band culture, Drumline, with another mm-hmm. superstar, a superstar that was definitely on the rise himself. Nick Cannon, and um, absolutely a lot of, yeah, and a lot of the movie was shot in Atlanta, and you featured a lot of a lot of the big, uh, a lot of the big HBCU marching bands such as uh, Grambling State and also Clark Atlanta, Florida A and M, and a host of others. Just kind of tell our audience the experience of Drumline, and also just working with Nick Cannon. Ah man, working with Nick was man, it was so dope. You know, I think I said this in a in an interview a while back when I was back in Los Angeles. Like, people have no idea. You know, I think people are going to come to really appreciate Nick much later on, you know, as he gets older and as he continues to mature and grow in his career. But, man, from the very beginning, Nick Cannon has been a real player, you know, not only as an actor uh, or, or on-screen talent, but also as a businessman. And, you know, during that time, Nick was able to really share a lot of knowledge uh, that he had even back then with me when it came down to, you know, producing, writing, developing your own projects. I mean, this was a guy that was talking that that kind of stuff, like while the rest of us were just simply happy to be in front of the camera. You know, this was a guy that was creating, developing, and having ownership in what it is that he was creating as it, as it relates to, you know, his intellectual properties and no, I mean, you know, not only is, is he extremely smart, but he's a genuinely good guy, very nice guy, easy to work with. I hope I have the pleasure and the honor of being able to work with him again one day on something. But no, the experience of working with Nick, Orlando Jones, uh, my brother Dallas Austin, who was the executive producer of it, uh, Charles Stone, who was the director, man, all the people that worked on that. Joey Saldana, too, huh? 
Zoe Zaldana, although I really didn't have a lot of scenes with her, I really wasn't afforded the opportunity to do a lot of interacting with her on a professional level. But I still, you know, knowing her and working with her, interacting with her, that was a pleasure. No, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, working and learning more about HBCUs and the tradition and black college marching bands and and the pageantry uh, behind that, and again, the tradition, getting acquainted with that. Because I grew up in Chicago, and, you know, HBCUs aren't like a big thing up north like that, at least at least with me growing up. Uh, you know, I had heard about Grambling, and I had heard about Morehouse and, and Howard and all of those schools, but I, I didn't know that much about the, the tradition that came and the pride that came with being aligned with an HBCU. Just due to my upbringing, I was a kid that grew up thinking I was going to attend school at Notre Dame one day, you know what I'm saying, or go to Purdue or go to Wisconsin or, you know, I was a Midwest kid. So when I was able to learn more about HBCUs when doing that film, I walked away with more than just a paycheck. I walked away with an experience. I walked away with lifelong friends. I I walked away with an additional sense of, like, black pride in, in our history and who we are and what we represent. Uh, it was rewarding all across the board, professionally and personally. So, um, you know, on top of the fact of uh, of me having that personal experience uh, that I had with that film, and then for it to come out and to be as successfully as it was, not only uh, with African Americans and with the black audience, but with mainstream audience and and internationally, it did really well. I take a lot of pride in that. I'm so glad that that. I was able to be a part of that film that could represent us and could represent our culture for it to be received as well as it was through mainstream audiences and internationally. Absolutely. All right. Well, speaking of being well, a film well-received by audiences, ATL. I mean, ATL is, is a, um, a classic amongst people in a lot of urban areas. And you had the pleasure of gracing mm-hmm. the stage with gracing that movie with people like T.I., who was a, a hip-hop giant in his own right. Of course, also mm-hmm. Evan Ross, Lauren London, Jackie Long, also uh, Michael T. Williams, who was in the movie, uh, Big Boy. Mm-hmm. And you correct me if I'm wrong, Jason. I believe um, Monica, Monica had a cam- cameo in the movie. And yeah, also, Monica had a cameo the, in it in the, in the uh-huh, and, yeah, Absolutely. And you also mentioned that, because uh, Dallas Austin was one of the, the executive producers of Drumline, and he returned as one of the producers of ATL, along with T-Boss, so kind of tell us yeah, and, and Will about Smith. This. And Will Smith was one of our executive oh. producers as well. Yep. yep. Okay, and Will Smith as well. So kind of tell our audience just a little bit about the experience of ATL and being with T.I. Because, I mean, Drumline was set in, AT, in, in Atlanta. ATL, of course, mm-hmm. set in Atlanta. But this is completely different in terms of, of the settings of the story. We go from HBCUs to kind of like being in a in a specific neighborhood and just kind of going through, mm-hmm. you know, through the, the ins and outs of the, the day-to-day grind. So tell our audience about the experience of ATL and working with people like T.I. and Lauren London and the rest of the people that I mentioned. Oh, man, working on ATL was, that was super dope. It was like uh, the best way that I could describe it to people, it was like shooting a two-month-long music video. That's just what it felt like. Like it felt like <laughs> uh-huh. you were shooting – shooting a music video for like two months because it was that, first of all, that energy was there. Yeah. Chris Robinson directing it, which is at the time he was one of the leading black um, music uh, directors, music video directors 
who was helping provide the visuals for most of the people that represented the culture during that time. So Chris had his finger on the pulse visually, on the pulse of the culture where he knew what was going to be visually attractive and appealing. What was surprising uh, and what I was pleasantly surprised about was his ability to tell a good story through his direction. Because most video directors, music video directors, you know, are great when it comes down to presenting something visually. But a lot of them have a hard time telling a story that connects with people and that resonates with people when it's not just about creating some kind of fancy camera angle or some kind of lighting effect. Like, you know, a great director is able to give you that, but they're also able to tell a great story visually. And I was pleasantly surprised to find out uh, during the time that I was working with Chris, a.k.a. the general, that's what I actually refer him to or refer him as. Um, man, he, he, you know, he took the bulls by the horns. He led us down the right path. He made sure that we represented the city of ATL and the culture that exists down here in a very real and authentic way, but also in a way where we just didn't, although it was an urban story, it didn't alienate others. Like, you know, other people from other communities and different walks of life were able to find something in the story or in the characters that they were they were able to connect with and identify with. And, you know, that that's uh, that's one of the things that I'm pleased that ATL was able to do because, you know, a lot of urban films sometimes get lost in the sauce when telling a story. You know, something they'll either focus on the visual more, more than they focus on the story, or they focus more on the story, but it's not... Uh, visually appealing and attractive. ATL was one of those urban stories, one of those urban films that was able to meet in the middle and appeal to everybody and expose uh, a part of the hip-hop culture, especially down here in Atlanta, that people weren't familiar with, which was the skating scene and which was Cascade. That was something I was familiar with down here prior to getting involved with that film because I've been living here for the past, I'd say, 21 years So I was already, like, familiar with what Atlanta was about. But for us to be able to capture that in a very authentic way on film and to present that on the big screen, I thought that was really, really dope. And, you know, getting up every day, getting a chance to work with Tip, work with Lauren, Evan, Jackie, Albie, man, who a big boy, you know, everybody that was on that that show. Man, we genuinely enjoyed each other's company. We genuinely had a great time every day on that shoot where it didn't even feel like it was work. It just felt like we were all coming there together early in the morning to hang out. There happened to be a camera around. We're filming some stuff. And then after we get through filming, we would all go out, you know, and hang out with each other at clubs or restaurants or whatever the case. Like, we were just having fun. And I think that's another thing that people really connected with, you know, with that film is that they could see that there was a, a genuine camaraderie there between all of the actors. And I mean, you know, it wasn't just the guys like, man, Malika and Khadijah, we'd all be kicking it. Like Lauren, some of her friends would come down from California that would like, you know, visit the set. You know, it was people, it was different music artists and different rappers and, and people like that that would visit the set just to show support and that would just come out of curiosity, you know, trying to figure out what we were doing. No, but, it, it, man, it was fly. Like, I ain't going to lie. Like, when we did that, man, that that was fly. So I'm uh, I'm glad that everybody, you know, enjoyed the film because we enjoyed making it. 
Awesome to hear, man. And uh, also just want to talk briefly about another film role that you did. You played the role of Ray Ray in Lottery Ticket with another hip-hop superstar in his own right, Bow Wow. And also That's in right. the movie was another uh, another comedian named Brandon T. Jackson, also Natori Norton, who plays on the star show Power. And also uh, the late yep. Charlie Murphy was in, as well as uh, Ice Cube and Bill Bellamy and Le- Leslie Jones before uh, Saturday Night Live. Uh, she got that tape on Saturday Night Live. So just tell our audience yeah. the, the experience like with Lottery Ticket. Working on Lottery Ticket was dope. That was another film uh, that I had the pleasure of shooting down here um, in Atlanta. Uh, shout out to Eric White, our director. Man, that was dope. That was another situation again. And, and mind you, I'm, I know this kind of sounds like redundant. It sounds like I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again. But let me just say this. Let me preface this before I get into it. I've been really, really blessed and fortunate to work with some great people throughout my life and throughout my career. And I'm thankful to be able to say that just about every project that I've been involved with has been rewarding professionally and personally. And when I say personally, it has to do with the relationships that I've been able to build and to, you know, to have with the people that I've worked with. So, yeah, Bow is a great friend. I knew Bow Wow, man prior to lottery ticket. I mean, just seeing him down here and, you know, working with So So Deaf, like I've I've known and been around Bow Wow since he was a little kid, since we were all kids. Um, working with Leslie Jones was the bomb. I I have been a fan of Leslie's man for years. I've been watching Leslie work as a comedian since the Deaf Comedy Jam day. And Leslie was one of those comedians that had been working in the business. Like, people don't know her story, but Leslie had been on the Chitlin circuit, had been on the comedy circuit for, like, 30 years. You know what I'm saying? Not not able to cross over that, that threshold into mainstream success and getting that, you know, mainstream recognition. And I'll never forget, she and I were working on lottery ticket, and we would talk a lot, you know, as far as what we were going to look to do next and, you know, our careers and a whole nine. And she had gotten to a point where she became very frustrated with just constantly being on the road as a comedian and not, in her opinion, not anything really that she was able to really gain from it, except for, you know, just being one of those recognized comedians that would be on the Chitlin circuit. And so she and I would always spend time with each other, encouraging each other, keep going, keep your head up. You know, one of these days you're, I would always tell her, I'd be like, Leslie, one of these days, man, somebody's going to walk into the comedy store or the Laugh Factory while you're doing a set, and they're going to go, H is crazy. You're, you're going you're gonna to tear it down. And I said, and that's going to be when your big, big break is going to come. And so she would joke. She said, well, I've been working those clubs, you know, for years, and nothing's ever happened, and woo, woo, woo. And so fast forward, you know, lottery ticket comes out. It does what it does, experiences the modern success that it does. You know, and then Leslie's still working the clubs still trying to make it happen, and then in walks Chris Rock, Chris Rock and catches her doing an amazing set, I think either at the Laugh Factory or the Comedy Store. And that's what prompted Chris to call Lauren Michael. And next thing you know, she's on Saturday Night Live, and now she is getting the just-do recognition and, and proper respect that she deserves because Leslie is honestly one of the nicest people that I've ever had the pleasure of working with, and she's totally deserving of all of the success that's been placed in her life. And, you know, I don't know if she's going to hear this or whatever, but man, Leslie, if you are, if you ever hear it, I'm so proud of you. 
you know, congratulations on everything. I tell you that all the time whenever we run into each other, but she's one of those people that I was rooting for and, you know, to see, to see, to see things come to fruition and manifest in her life the way that they have. I, man, I couldn't be more happier for Leslie. God bless her. And, and, uh, you know, all that being said, working with Charlie Murphy, rest in peace to Charlie. Charlie is my guy. He had us, he stayed cracking the setup. We cracked up. Every time Charlie was on set, he had the whole stage, the whole set dying. You know, I didn't know at the time that that was going to be, you know, our one and only time that we got the chance to work uh, with each other. But I'm so blessed to say that I had the privilege and the honor of working alongside with the legendary Charlie Murphy at one point in time in my career. And, you know, everybody else, uh, Notori, Brandon, man, everybody that was involved with the show. It was a... it was fun working with Cube, with the legend Cube. Like, man, I had never met Ice Cube before. Even all of my years of living in California, us having mutual friends, like me and DJ Pooh, me and him are real tight, but I never had the pleasure of meeting Cube. And so when we got the chance to, to work on Lottery Ticket, you know, I'm telling him, like, I'm quoting lyrics from, like, the Predator album. I'm quoting lyrics from the NWA, you know, NWA albums, like, America's Most Wanted. Like, I mean, I'm... I'm going in. And after I got to doing all that and telling him how great he was, and Ice Cube sat down with me for like 30 to 45 minutes and expressed to me how he's been a fan of my career and some of the things that he's watched that I've done and, you know, sharing lines with me, like quoting lines that I had. And it was such a surreal experience because here I am, like, you know, looking at this legend that I grew up, you know, listening to and admiring. And he took time you know, out of his day to let me know that he appreciates my creative contribution. And that's something that I'll never forget. Like, big up to Ice Cube. Ice Cube continues to give multiple people of color in this industry legitimate opportunities um, to get their name and their likeness out there. And, you know, I just want to let him know he's another one. If you happen, happen to hear this, Cube, like, man, thank you so much, man, for all that you've done and you continue to do for people like myself and many others uh, that look like me and giving us opportunities to uh, to shine and to be able to provide for our family. So shout out to Ice Cube, man. Awesome to hear, man. And definitely you've had a great uh, acting career thus far, and you continue to do big things. But now not only have you done your thing in the acting world, but with the music. And um, you had a, a, a top five hit with a rapper out of St. Louis uh, named Chingy called One Call Away. Tell our audience about that process of One Call Away because I, I remember when that song came out, man, that was that was jamming really that whole summer. I mean, One Call Away, it was on every radio station, whether it be a hip-hop station or even a top 40 station. No matter where you mm-hmm. traveled across the country, One Call Away was playing and also as well on the, uh, the venues like uh, BET's 106 and Park and MTV's mm-hmm. Total Request mm-hmm. Live. So just tell our audience about the creative process. No, well, the creative process for that was this. I was uh, in Los Angeles uh, shooting a film um, called The Lady Killers with uh, Tom Hanks and that the Coen brothers directed. And a friend of mine that I knew from here in Atlanta by the name of Poon Daddy. Poon Daddy was a radio host uh, that was on the radio with, with Ludacris and with Lala. And this is back when they were on Hot 97 here in Atlanta. And they had a show called the Chris Lover Lover and Poon Daddy Show. And so when I was promoting my records for Motown and when I'd have to come to the Atlanta market, Ludacris and Poon would look out for me and play my records and stuff. And this is when they were 
just radio DJs. And they would, like, you know, play my records and support me in the whole nine. And so I, I had a pre-existing relationship with Ludacris and with the members of DTP and with Poon Daddy. And so I happened to run into Poon at a club out there at some random spot. And he was like, oh, you out here in L.A.? And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm doing this film. He was like, dude, I'm so glad that I ran into you because, man, you need to do this this record that we got up. He was like, man, you heard of this kid by the name of Chingy? He's from St. Louis. He got out this. He has this song out right now called Right There. And, of course, I was familiar with it because Right There was, like, playing every 20 seconds, it seemed like, in Los Angeles. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I know that kid. He was like, man, check it out. We in the studio tonight. He's like, we're at Larrabee West Studios. Man, why don't you come on through and meet him? And while you know while you're there, I want I want you to play this record, man. That I, man, I think you sound good on. So you know, after I wrapped that night from filming or whatever, I went to the studio, met Chingy. Him, he and I chopped it up, played a couple rounds of pool, just getting to know one another as young men. We hit it off instantly, and then Poon brought me into the room and played me one call away. And at that time, he played me like just the track. And, of course, I thought the track was dope. And then, um, you know, I asked him, I was like, you know, well, well what's the hook? So him and Chingy just kind of sang the hook to me and what it was, you know, what it was supposed to sound like. And so I said, oh, man, that sounds cool. Well, you know, count me in. I'm down. You know, let's do it. So I think it was maybe two two or three days later, DTP or Poon, I should say, scheduled the uh, the recording session in Burbank. It just so happened that day I was filming in a, I was filming like in Eagle Rock, California. So on my lunch break, Joel and Ethan Cohen gave me permission to get in a cab and to shoot down to Burbank and record the song. And so I recorded that record on my lunch break while shooting uh, the Lady Killers. And, you know, the next thing I know, maybe three or four months later, uh, Poon called me and told me that the record had tested really well amongst focus groups. And that nine times out of ten, that was going to be the next single that they were going to they were going to roll out with. And sure enough, it was. And the next thing I knew, you know, it was on every radio station across the country, and you know, on TRL and 106 and Park, and you know, every other outlet that showcased you know R&B and pop music. So I'm truly appreciative and thankful that I was given that opportunity. Shout out to the Poon Daddy. If if it wasn't for him, I, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. So, you know, I, I make sure that I give him the credit for that because a lot of the times his name doesn't get mentioned or he doesn't get acknowledged uh, when it comes to uh, how that record was built and the success of it. But just so everybody knows, uh, my man Poon Daddy, he was the one that, you know, he was the one that put it together. And, uh, and uh, yeah, from there on, it just it, it went and uh, just became very, very successful. So thanks to everybody out there that supported it. And I'm glad everyone liked the song. I like the song, and a lot of people all over the world like the song as, as well. And, you know, this is also a sports program, so I know, again, you grew up in Chicago, so you're a big fan mm-hmm. of the Chicago Bears. And i got to ask you about the Bears and particularly the quarterback, Mitchell Trubisky. A lot of people have been uh, questionable of him since his arrival in the Windy City. Now, Mitchell Trubisky was in the same draft with Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes. When you find out mm-hmm. when you find out that the Bears had drafted Trubisky, what was your reaction? I was disappointed, just like every other Bears fan. And let me say this too, because I'm not on the throw darts at Mitch Bandwagon. Look, not every player is meant for a specific team or a specific system. When I saw that Mitch was coming out of um, North Carolina, 
And I just knew that the, the, the type of leadership that we needed, especially in the offense, I just didn't think he'd be able to provide. And I really didn't feel like he'd be able to play like real aggressive gridiron football which is what we play in Chicago. And I really didn't feel like he was going to be able to raise up to the level, especially when we play the Cheeseheads, especially when we play the Packers. I, I knew that their defense would be coming at him all cylinders. They'd be blitzing every chance that they got. I knew that, you know, I know that we don't have the strongest O-line possible or the most effective O-line. So I knew that we were going to need a quarterback in there that was going to be able to stand in the pocket firmly, read the field, see what was out there. I know we don't have a lot of weapons available to us when it comes to receivers and all of that, but I just wanted him to just be able to get comfortable enough within the pocket, even if he just had two to three seconds to find somebody down the field and throw the ball, because I knew that we needed a really strong passing game. And I needed somebody, too, that was going to be able to scramble and that was going to be able to rush like what like what, um, what my man Lamar uh, Jackson is doing. Like, I needed a guy like that. And so, you know, I'll keep it real. When we passed on Deshaun and we passed on Patrick Mahomes, I was like, okay, here we are. Like like most Bears fans who happen to be black, I feel like the front office of the organization overlooks black quarterbacks sometimes and don't give them a chance based off of whatever, like, you know, stereotype or whatever negative stigma uh, used to revolve around black quarterbacks. Now – that narrative is shifting because you're seeing guys like Patrick Mahomes, you know, throwing the ball like crazy. You're seeing guys like Deshaun Watson going hard. You're seeing Lamar Jackson. So that, that narrative is shifting, but, you know, we as the Bears, like, we never take a chance like that. And I think that we should. Like, I think if we got a legitimate chance to get Cam Newton, get him. Like, we need somebody big. We need somebody that's going to be able to see over the line. We need somebody who's going to be tough and aggressive enough, and we need somebody that's going to be able to work fast enough to where he can run, not be afraid to take a couple hits, you know what I'm saying, and, and, and have at least like his passing accuracy on point and his passing percentage on point and up. I don't have anything personally against Mitch. I know it's really, really hard to have a whole city on your shoulders like that. I get it, but I don't think he's the answer for us. And I think we need to figure out as soon as possible what we're going to do. Now, I've seen an uptick, you know, these past couple of weeks. Like, he had a, you know, we had a good game against the Cowboys. You know, like, I get all of that. But, you know, I need us to be coming out of the gate a real threat to where people are really looking to see us or expecting to see us in the postseason. I'm tired of us being a team where it's always a toss-up. And if we happen to get in the postseason – you know, we get far enough and then we flounder because there's something in our offense that people have been able to find and break down. Everything can't be on Khalil Mack and the guys on defense. Everything can't be on those guys, man. That's that's just too much. And I know we're known as a team for playing defensive football, but man, I want to see a strong offensive game. Like I'm I'm you know, I'm tired of like looking at relying on the defense to give us the turnovers and the fumbles, you know what I'm saying, and to keep guys you know, at a spot on the field, like, no, nah, man, I want to see somebody throw the pill. I want to see somebody – I want to see regress. I want to see a receivers, receivers that are aggressive, that are running, like, some really cool routes, you know what I'm saying, that are getting the ball and getting yards. And, you know, much big up to Coach Nagy, like, you know, big up to the coaches. Like, I, you know, I get it. 
well, man, we need to make some adjustments. And if the, G, like the GM, like, needs to consider in this offseason, like, I'm not really expecting to be in the postseason. Not really expecting for the rest of the season to be, you know, uh, spectacular. So what I'd like for us to do now is figure out what it's going to take to be those guys for next year. We got youth. We got my man David Montgomery. Shout out to David. Like, we, you know, we got, we got people. But I need a QB. I need a leader. So, you know, again, Mitch, if you happen to hear this, nothing against you, bro. It's, 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 it's nothing personal. But we all knew. We all knew. All Bears fans knew when we brought you up from North Carolina, you weren't going to be able to really do it like that. I think if he goes somewhere out west or if he goes, you know, I don't know where he needs to go, but I just know that I, he doesn't need to be with my boys. I need somebody. So that's my personal opinion as to where we're at. Well, let's stay with the quarterback situation for a moment, Jason. So if, if Trubisky's not the answer, again, Cam Newton is expected to be a free agent at the end of the year. Also, Teddy Bridgewater, who back who filled in nicely while Drew Brees was injured for the New Orleans Saints. He sure Teddy did. Bridgewater could mm-hmm. be a, Teddy Bridgewater could be a possible free agent. And Teddy knows the division because he played in the NFC North as the quarterback for the Vikings. So besides right. Cam Newton or possibly Teddy Bridgewater, who else do you think that could possibly take over the role as the Bears quarterback for next season? You know what? I don't know because, I mean, is there anybody, like, really available? The rest of the quarterbacks that are threats that are real deal are firmly firmly baked into the cake where they at. Deshaun is doing great in Houston. Patrick is doing great in Kansas City. Lamar is doing great. Drew, B- Drew Brees is going to retire a Saint. I don't want Matt Ryan at all. Who else? Uh, I mean, you got a guy like Baker Mayfield, but they're not going to let him go in Cleveland. I think they're going to get rid of Odell before they let him go. Um, who else? Uh, There's uh, uh, Andy Dalton eh, from the, I from like the Cincinnati Bengals. I, like, I, like, <laughs> no, I, like, I like Andy when he played in Cincinnati, but he was inconsistent. Like, he'd have good games, and then he'd have some real lackluster, like, whack games. So I don't, I don't want that. I want a guy that's going to come on the field and be a leader. That's why I'm so hell-bent on us getting Cam. I know Cam is going to have the locker room turned up. Those men are going to follow him. They're going to listen. The, the, the O-line is going to do their job. Because if I was him, I'd be like, look, fellas, I'm not about to be – I know I'm a big guy, and I know I can see over this line, and I know I can throw this ball, and I know when y'all falter, I can run this ball up the field and take the hit. But I don't want to. So now that y'all know y'all got a real quarterback back here that can throw the ball, give me some protection or move some pieces around to where we get a stronger O-line to where Cam could get at least four seconds in the pocket, three to four seconds in the pocket. That's all he needs to see down that field and to get it cracking. So that's really all I need. Like, I, I want Cam Newton, and that, that's what I'm setting my sights on. It'd be great to have Teddy, but all I need is a guy with size like Cam, and I need a guy – that the locker room is going to respect. And that's what Cam brings to the table. Cam is a leader. You know, I, I was mad when we got rid of Greg Olson and we sent him down to North Carolina, and I saw the one-two punch that him and Cam had down there. I said, man, what if we had down in Chicago? You know what I mean? What I need. Like, I, I mean, seriously. If, if, and if they don't do it, if they don't get Cam, we're all going to be mad because we've been sitting here talking about it since mid-season. Ever since we found out he was a free agent and he was ready to go or there was a possibility, that got us all salivated. So now that's all I want to see now in the offseason. That's all I want to see now. Because right now what I'm seeing on the field, the product that's on the field is decent. 
I'm not mad at it. I'm not embarrassed. I'm, it's going to be bare down to the day they put me six feet deep. But give me something. Like, give me something that makes me want to get on a flight and fly up to Chicago and sit at Soldier Field in the cold and watch you play. Give me something. You know what I'm saying? To want to come up. No, I'm just saying, like, give me a reason to want to come up there and, like, and really run die hard with the team and be like, because I'm one of those kind of Bear fans. Like, me and my family have done it in the past. We're quick to hop on a flight and go to Soldier Field. But we haven't done it in a few years because there's not a product on the field that we really believe in. So I really need the front office. I really need the GM for them to get they, themselves together. And then on top of that, too, if Coach Navy wants certain pieces and wants certain people brought in, listen to Coach. And just and just get it because I do believe in I do believe in coach I do believe we got a good coach I like the way he gets down I like his spirit I like I like his leadership quality those men respect him and they trust him and he knows what he's talking about but you got to give him the pieces we lucked up when we got Khalil thanks to coach Coach Gruden we lucked up but we can't it, it's not about luck it's about strategy and especially during the off season so that's it and I know I get kind of loud and passionate with it but. You know, I love the Bears. I love Chicago sports. You know what I mean? And I have a lot of pride when it comes to our teams and when it comes to the city. And I just want to see us win because I know that we're, we're better than that. And the funny part about it is everybody wants to see us win. Everybody loves Chicago sports teams because they recognize that we're the real deal and we come from these storied histories and traditions and, and the pageantry that, you know, is aligned with our team. But we can't continue to carry that on and have people going, oh, yeah, Chicago, and every time we turn around, our team sucks. Like, come on. You know what I mean? Wow. You, you're certainly a passionate Bears fan, and, man, it's good to hear that emotion <laughs> that you have, man. I just um, You mentioned about David Montgomery, and he's definitely uh, filled in nicely in, in, the, in the running back uh, the running back role, but also I, I was kind of worried because when the Bears traded Jordan Howard, I really thought that a missing piece of that running game was going to be lost, but David Montgomery's filled in nicely. And how about Tariq Cohen? He's a dynamo, whether it be running, receiving, oh, or return, being a return oh. specialist. He's off the chain. Oh, Tariq's off the chain. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no question about it. That's what I'm saying. We got pieces. We got pieces. It, like, if we can just get somebody in there that can execute these plays and that can lead on that field, then we'll be all right. And, and mind you, and, and, and I'll say this, too, that as it relates to the Bears. I had the pleasure of meeting David Montgomery at the uh, rookie, um, the NFLPA uh, rookie symposium, a rookie retreat, where they do the, uh, the jersey reveals, the whole nine. They bring, they bring the rookies. The NFLPA brings the rookies out to Los Angeles every year before the season starts. And what they do is that they throw these dinners and they put together these parties where members, the, the rookie class, can meet the press, meet certain people uh, in the film and television or entertainment world, and just get a chance to mingle, get a chance to see what the NFL professional life is going to be like for them. And what I really, really respect about David is when he and I first met, because he was a fan of Smart Guy and all of that, so we were chopping it up about that. And so, you know, I told him I was a Bears fan and I was going to be, you know, looking out for him. And, man, the passion in his voice about helping make that team a winner, I knew from there, I was like, this kid is going to do something for us. He's going to be a superstar for us. I don't know when he's going to have that major, major breakout season where he's really going to be able to show what he's about, but it's coming. But we got to be able to keep guys like that healthy. They can't be getting banged up. You know what I'm saying? They got to have room. Like, he can run through the middle, but that O-line has got to start now doing a lot more work. We, we need to take some pieces out of that 
and we need to get some big guys in there that's just going to offer protection, that's going to open up some lanes, open up some routes for these, these strong running backs and for some of these receivers to get the ball. Like, we need that. But, you know, big shout-out to David Montgomery, man, good good friend of mine. I, I actually speak to him uh, every once in a while via text. He was gracious enough to. I had a family member who wasn't really doing that well for a minute, was dealing with, uh, you know, some physical problems and had been in the hospital for a minute. Man, David Montgomery sent me a personalized video to give to my cousin. I can't say enough good things about that guy. On top of the fact he's a great player, he's a great human being. Big up to David. Awesome to hear, man. Shouts out to David Montgomery. And then, you know, the Bears also know we're being the monsters of the midway and their defense. You talked about Khalil Mack, and he's no slouch. And also, we can't forget about guys like Leonard Floyd. I know Danny Trevathan's been injured, but also you've got Eddie Goldman. Those guys feeling in nicely on the defensive side. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, let's be honest, Ed. We've never had to worry about defense in Chicago. We're known for it. The days of Mike Singletary, Steve McMichael, like all of the guys, Richard Dent, like all of those guys. What, what were we known as the Black and Blues Brothers back in 85 when we were, like, you know, stuffing the ball down people's face masks? You know, we're, we've always been known for that. But we've never been known to be an offensive team. And that's just what I really want to see. You know, a lot of my friends that are fans of other teams, when they go and see their teams, they're seeing some exciting plays, exciting playmakers, you know what I'm saying? I don't get a lot of that. When I see exciting plays going down, a lot of it's done, been done on the defensive end, which I'm not mad because those things that are done on the field by those defensive guys have helped sometimes been the ones to determine the outcome of the game. But I want to see, like, I just want to see something exciting on the field, and especially offensive-related. I'm not worried about the defense at all. We are always going to be known for being those guys. But there's only so much that they can do. There's only so many stops that they can make happen. Once we get on the other side of the ball, we need to be able to score. We need to be able to score, plain and simple. So, you know, again, no disrespect to Mitch, no disrespect to the offense like that. Like, I'm not trying to even personally attack anybody, but as a true diehard Bears fan, what I do want to see is some changes being made, some pieces being moved around in the offense, and I want to see those done in the offseason. So next year, Cause, I mean, the first game coming out, our first game, we played Green Bay on a Thursday and got slaughtered. You know what I'm saying? I, 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 I'm mm-hmm. sitting at a sports bar here in Atlanta pulling my hair out because the bar that I go to down here in Georgia is actually a Packers bar. So I'm sitting with my jersey on in this Packers bar looking at the Packers putting shellacking on my boy's first game. I'm tired of going through that every season. I'm tired of going, oh, it's a toss-up. Because at the end of the day, we're not Cleveland. We're Chicago. So, like, start playing like it. That's all I'm saying. Very interesting. You're passionate about your Bears, and uh, hopefully they can finish out the year strong, and they can definitely make some strides happen going into the future. Let's talk now about the Chicago Bulls. Now we know the Bulls are, uh, you know, the Bulls are are, are a team that's still rebuilding. They've got some young pieces such as Zach Levine and Laurie Marketing. So what's your thoughts on uh, on the Bulls? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't get – I don't get excited about Bulls basketball until after All-Star because, like you said, we're rebuilding. So I'll catch a couple games. I'm just being completely honest here. I'll catch a couple games every once in a while, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not, I'm not watching every game yet. I'm not trying to, you know, figure out, okay, now we got this, we got this, now we'll be going. Because I, you really can't determine anything until – 
until after All Star, like going, you know, going closer to the postseason. Like I'll even, I'll even start looking at basketball seriously, like, mm, like latter part of January going into February, because by that time, I'll know we'll have our injury, our injury reports. We'll know who's healthy. We know who's probably going to be going until May and June. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I don't really like to put the cart before the horse when it comes to them, and I really don't like making a lot of predictions as it relates to the Bulls because you just, you just never know right now while we're in this, in this transitional stage. What I hope, or what I do hope, is that we'll end up being real contenders. What I do hope is, is that one day we will get in that postseason soon and be dominant enough. But I got to be honest, like, I mean, even if we got there, man, we're not stopping what's going on in the West at all, at all. Like, LeBron and them over there, they snapping. You know what I'm saying? Kawhi, they doing what they doing over there. Like, it's just, and you know, and even in the East, I just, I haven't seen anything yet that's made me go, oh, God, like, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, we're on our way. We're on that trajectory to being those guys again. But here's what I will say about the Bulls organization that I appreciate. I carry the memories with me. So the, the organization can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. I carry the dynasty memories with me when Mike was there, when Pippen was there. I had the honor and the pleasure of, of singing the national anthem at the United Center during the era one day. Oh, had awesome. had Mike and Pippen. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, sang the, uh, I sang the Star Spangled Banner, and it was during uh, – what season was that? I almost, want to say, I almost want to say it was the 96th season. And, uh, no, nah, uh, uh, the Bulls asked me to come. I sang. Michael Jordan and Pippen gave me a pat after the song. Shook my hand. Then I sat front row, sat courtside, and watched my guy. So, you know, all of that being said, I, I carry those memories with me. So I can, I, can wait another, I can wait another four or five years till we get it together. I can wait another four or five years. But what I'm still holding on right now to is the old legacy, the old regime. You know what I'm saying? And, and once, I, once I see that we're making some strides as it relates to turning into the Bulls team that we need to be for this generation, then I'll reconnect and I'll check back in. But I got to be honest, <laughs> like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't check back in until after the break. And then I go, okay, so, all right, where are you guys at now? Okay, now who's healthy? <laughs> who's left? You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, right. okay, so you're, you're, you're healthy, you're good to go. Okay, okay, okay. Well, what's LeBron and him doing? Okay, well, we're not doing that. So either which way, fellas, we got to bring in some talent. Because at the first one, I thought we were going to be bringing Zion. Man, I thought I, when, that, when that rumor was out there that we might, because we were entertaining that for a while. That's what I said. I said, man, if we can bring in some new heat like that. See, for me, it's all about talent, and it's all about youth. And as long as you guys, as long as we as a city and our teams, as long as we recruit, these super talented, youthful players, they'll, they'll step up to the plate because everyone enjoys playing for Chicago. It's a big city. It's a big market. We got the best fans in the world. We got the best teams in the world. Like, real sports guys want to play for us. So all we really got to start doing is actively, like, seeking these guys out when the offseason is out here. Like how, how, uh, how Joe did when he brought everybody together for the Cubs. Like how all of those guys came together like that, that's what should continue to go down in Chicago, especially when we're rebuilding. Get the real talent. Recruit some guys in here that you know are going to do their job and who are going to love playing for this city and love giving their all to these fans. 
Don't bring in any entitled cats. Don't bring in any cats like, you know, it's got a jaded mindset and let's play for this team and that team. No, bring me a superstar and bring me youth, and we'll show you dubs, period. I could go on and on about that. I'm, and, you know, when it comes to Chicago sports, because I, I live in Atlanta, and I'm surrounded by, by these guys down here, whether it's their Falcons fans or the Hawks, or the, you know, and, and even in the South period. I got to see cats from New Orleans. Like, I'm, I'm always having to hear their stuff. And I can never really chime in and say anything about my boys because I know where we at. So I just mm-hmm. be keeping my mouth shut in a lot of times in these discussions. And I'm tired of doing it. I want to be able to say, oh, well, did you check my guys out? Like how we did, had the big win against Dallas. I was like, okay, yeah, y'all see that? Yeah, everybody's talking about Dak, Zeke, all that. Look at what we did. We still held it down. It was close, came down close to the wire, but hey, we still won. I like to have my little bragging rights as a Chicago fan. You feel me, Ed? Man, I feel you on that one. And, uh, speaking of having your bragging rights, you uh, continue to have bragging rights in your entertainment career. So tell our audience what, uh, what other projects are you currently working on? Okay. Um, well, right now I'm currently working on and producing alongside with my good friend and sister, Lena Waif. It's a project called Team Supreme. It's an animated project. It's based around kids with disabilities and special needs whose disabilities and special needs are turned into superpowers via their doctor that they work with. So it's a project that was created by a a black artist and animator based down here in Atlanta by the name of Joshua Leonard. A mutual friend of ours brought us together because they knew that, you know, I was producing different projects. And, And so he and I met up. He gave me permission to move his intellectual property around and create some traction. I took it over to my sister, Lena Waith, one of Chicago's own as well. And Lena put us in the, her company, the Hillman Grad Production, their system. And so we've been working alongside with Rishi Rajani, uh, the creator, create, creative uh, executive director at Hillman Grad, as well as our showrunner, Giselle, and with Lena and with Alex Phillips, which is another one of our producers. And we are currently in, in, in the process of pitching that show right now. We're pitching it to a specific network. I can't get into detail about it because we're in the process of closing the deal. But hopefully, the closer we get to the actual release date, I can come back on the phone or, you know, get in an interview with you and uh, share with the people when it will be coming out. It'll, it'll definitely be next year when it will be premiering. But that's what I'm doing now. And I also have another animated series positioned over at Comedy Central called The Secret Society. That animated series was created by Antonio Reed Jr., L.A. Reed's son, and two of his other partners, Cage Parker and Dantley Wyatt. So that was another situation, again, where presented with what I thought was a phenomenal uh, intellectual property. And I had some relationships already with some producers uh, in California. So I reached out to my cousin and co-producer, Mark Stewart, who put us together with Geneva Wasserman. And then Geneva Wasserman took us over to Viacom, and we presented the, uh, the show to Comedy Central, who took it. And now we're currently developing that at Comedy Central. So that should be coming out. Uh, next year as well. I got to be honest with everybody, that one is in a little bit of development hell because we've had to restructure some characters. We've had to rewrite some things. That that one has been somewhat of a task, but it's still coming out. And it's a, it's a, uh, it's a great show. Really, really funny. It's like, it's like the Sopranos meets the Simpsons. And we play on like, oh, wow. you know, conspiracy theories and like, it's really, really, really funny. So everybody be on the lookout for that. And then as far as like some of my on-screen stuff, um, you guys can look out for me 
in the upcoming season of Boomerang uh, on BET. I got a little reoccurring role on there. I don't know when that's going to be premiering, but, you know, as far as on-screen stuff, I'm, I'm definitely on that show as well as a reoccurring. And, yeah, that's about it. And other than that, uh, just so everybody knows who's listening to this podcast, you know, if you have any great ideas, uh, if you have any scripts, particularly in the in the realm of animation, feature films, uh, multi-camera television shows, whatever the case may be, if it's a great idea and you're looking to hopefully take it to the next level and align it with some legitimate producers and legitimate players, please feel free to reach out to me via Instagram or Twitter at It's Jason Weaver. So at I-T-S Jason Weaver. And you can hit me on either Instagram or Twitter. And what I just suggest people do is if you, you know, and this is for people that are genuinely looking to do it, you know, who work professionally and even those people that may still be amateurs in a sense, but they know that they have like a really, a really great idea or a great script that they're trying to get out. Please send me one page or two page synopsis. I'm not just taking ideas over the phone or somebody pitching me like through DM and telling me the story. And what I also suggest as well is before you send me anything or submit anything, please make sure that it's copywritten. Please make sure that it's registered with the Writers Guild of, of, of America to where, you know, your property is protected. And uh, no, nah, if, it's, if it's something that I think that I, can, that I can help with or that I can help take to the next level, man, I'll get at you, and, and hopefully we can do some business. So all of that being said, although I'm still continuing to work as an on-screen talent, I'm shifting a lot of my focus and my attention towards being uh, a successful producer, writer, and director. Because at this point in my life and my career, I just want to – I want to not only create more opportunities for myself, but I want to create more opportunities for others around me. And so in order to do that, you know, you got to, you got to get out there and you got to plant your flag and you got to blaze a trail, you know, for the next, the next generation to come or blaze a trail for the, for those people that have talent that may be getting overlooked. It may not be getting the opportunities that I've been afforded or that, that I've been given. So I want to now be able to provide those kind of opportunities to the up and coming class. And for those who are, in a point of transition and are looking to take their careers to the next level. So that's what Jason Weaver is doing right now. So again, anybody genuinely and seriously interested and seriously about that, like working and doing great projects and, and, and being a professional about it, please feel free to hit me at it's Jason Weaver on Instagram and on Twitter. Do you have a website? Um, no, I don't, I don't have a, a website. I, I recently just took it down cause it was just, I don't know. It's just no reason for me to have one. I was never really on it. And the majority of the, the correspondence and interaction that I have with my fans is on those social media platforms. So anybody really trying to get at me, just hit me up on Twitter or uh, on Instagram, and I'll definitely, uh, I'll definitely reach out to you. And for people, you know, with other inquiries, whether it has to do with events or stuff like that, in, the, in, my, uh, in my bio on the top of my page, my publicist information is at the top, Teresa Villano. I believe her, I believe her Twitter and her IG is uh, Teresa at, or at Teresa PR. So, you know, again, you guys can just go on my page and you can see her information. But if there are any uh, inquiries, you know, regarding sending scripts or projects that you have or appearances or interviews or whatever, like you guys can just hit me up on there and somebody will get back to you promptly. Well, before I let you go, Jason, is there um, 
are you still going to be working on any music projects in the future, or, have you, or is music something you've kind of put on the on the back burner for a little while? No, actually, that's a great question. I'm I'm down here in Atlanta right now working on music. I'm in the studio. So what I am planning on doing is putting together a good maybe four to five solid EP, four to five song EP. I already have one song uh, called I Don't Care that I recorded that my cousin Tricky Stewart and Dream wrote. So that's a great record. Um, I have another um, another couple records that I've been that I've recorded already, as well as some other ones that I'm going to record probably in the next week or so before the Christmas break. But yeah, I'm, I'm working on some music music right now, and you know the music that I'm going to be releasing is coming straight from my heart, coming straight from my soul. I'm not out here trying to do like trap R&B and like trying to keep up with the Joneses and all of that. I think. You know, for people that are that are interested in checking it out, what you can expect, it's just great music, great songs with great lyrics, awesome melodies, and a level of musicality that people haven't heard in a while. So I'm bringing a lot. I'm, I'm, I won't say I'm bringing something back to black music because I don't think that you know we've lost anything per se, but I'm just bringing a different perspective, or or I'm providing a different approach by which to do black music and crossover music. So I hope people will look favorably upon the project when it comes out. Like I said, I'm pouring my heart and soul into it. I'm working with some great people. And, uh, yeah, when it comes out or closer to the release date of it, uh, hopefully I can get in, you know, another interview with you then and, you know, maybe promote it and make people aware of the fact that it's out there. Awesome to hear. Well, you've heard it from him. He's Jason Weaver. He's an actor. He's an entertainer. And also he's uh, planting his feet firmly behind the scenes, doing work as a, uh, visionary producing and also uh, springboarding some projects. Jason, thank you so much for being on the program. If ever you want to come back on, feel free to let us know. Thank you so much, Ed. I really, really appreciate you. Thank you for taking out the time to interview me. And also to everyone out there, um, you know, who I've never met personally, but who has supported my career throughout the years uh, or, you know, maybe met me in the street or hit me up via social media, you know, just letting me know how much you appreciate my work. Please know that I don't take that for granted. You know, it's a blessing to be able to get up every day and to do things by which I can provide, you know, a source of entertainment for y'all. And I just pray, man, that y'all just, you know, just continue to pray for me, uh, you know, and just continue to send out positive energy to, to me, man, because that's, you know, that's always needed and that's always welcome. This isn't an easy business, uh, no matter what people tell you. They, some people can make it look like, you know, it's just a breeze, but people like myself who've been in it for well over 30 years, 30 plus, you know, you definitely have your ups and downs in this business. But what keeps us going is the genuine love that we get from people like y'all out there that, that support our work and that provide that positive energy and reinforcement. So I just want to thank all of you all out there and um, God bless all of y'all and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you, Ed, and to all your listeners out there. All right, well, same here, Jason. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and your family and everyone else as well. And we'll be back with more right after this. Get it. 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 Get it.
get it. When you bring home a Goodwill find, you give your whole town a reason to celebrate because you're also funding local job training and placement programs in tech, healthcare, and more. Goodwill. Bring good home. That's going to do it for another edition of The Robinson Show. I'm your host, Ed Robinson. And remember, put God first in everything you do and you can't go wrong. Until next time, stick to the script. I'm out. Peace. Whenever you get this, This is Hugh Douglas from 9290 Game, and you listen to MTMV Sports.